The following is a conversation. It has the features of any conversation, such as imperfectly expressed thoughts, ill-considered opinions, and the notions of several sleep-deprived brains. Try not to get your stethoscope in a twist about it. I like to joke that I'm the least professional member of the Office of Student Affairs and <laughs> Curriculum. Everybody else is very, you know... And that's including when the students walk in and out, so... Yeah. Everybody <laughs> else is very professional. You know, they don't swear. They don't, uh, you know, make weird... I, I try not to make off-color jokes, but, you know, weird jokes that nobody else gets. You know? Oh, I think we might be on the same page. Nice. Is, we'll have to talk about... Not as weird as they've you, done, They've done studies on cussing, actually. That's a topic for another time, but... That, uh, that people who swear... Have a larger lexicon. Are, yes. Yep. I was going to ah, go with. Ah, interesting. I was going to go with. Much. I definitely increased my curse word volume when I became an intern. Yeah. <laughs> that makes sense. Yeah. The year of literacy, intern year. <laughs> yes, for sure. It was like, oh, you were in medical school, great. Now we're going to start brand new. So <laughs> that was the advice I had gotten from my attendings on yeah. one of my first days. Like you're just starting, like from scratch. Every, again. Everything you thought you knew is. Mm -hmm. uh, yep. Now it's the real world. Meandering in the margins of medicine, it's the Short Coat Podcast. Weird news, fresh views, helpful clues, and interviews. By students, for students. Subscribe to our weekly show at theshortcoat.com. Welcome back to the Short Code Podcast. This is a show that gives you an inside look at medical school from the students drinking from that fire hose. It's a production of the University of Iowa Carver College of Medicine. I'm Dave Etler. With me today in the SCP studio, it's new co-host, PA1, Connor Lizer. Close enough, Lisa. No, no don't could, do that. You could say Samantha. It doesn't matter to me. I should have checked. I assumed it was Lizer. It's Lizer. 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 Yeah. I think it's German. Yeah. I think, so I think you need to change the spelling of your name. I think me. so, too. I'm actually looking to get married so I can take her last name. So. What's her last name? I don't know. I'm going to find it. Though, oh, you? So. Okay. I, I guess <laughs> I'm, about, I'm kind of putting, <laughs> I'm putting the cart before the horse there. But uh. <laughs> Hi, I'm Connor. Thanks for having me on the podcast. Well, joining us from our satellite studio in Des Moines, it's M2 Jeff Goddard. Happy to be here. And if you thought that was all short coats, shame on you. Shame, because we've also got a special guest, Sylvia Caswell is a physician at Loma Linda University Health, and she's here to talk about her sleeper specialty, preventive medicine. Welcome to the show, Dr. Caswell. Thank you so much for having me. It's a pleasure to be with you all this morning or afternoon, wherever you Where, are. So. You know, whoever listens, they don't know. They uh, no, you kind of lose bit. track at one yeah. point. Preventive medicine I, is, on our, is on our list of sleeper specialties. Um Programs that people might not know or think about, but should. Uh, Jeff, you've said on the show before that this is going to be uh, your career. What do you? Yes. Think, so, what do you think makes it a sleeper spe specialty? So, I remember I talked to one of our deans here about well, you know what we might do about getting an accredited program here in Iowa, and she's like, "Is that an accredited like residency? Like, is that like a specialty? Like a real thing?" So, like the fact that the dean didn't even know, I was like, "Okay, all right." So. I think in large part, it's due to how it's funded and therefore its relationship with match day because it doesn't participate in like the big match day, right? In March every year. I think a lot of people just like kind of discount it or like don't recognize that it even exists. And another part is that 
its name, preventive medicine, sounds like the thing that everybody else already kind of does. So they're like, oh, that's just an aspect of, say, family med or an aspect of peds or whatever. Sure, yeah. That's so fair. I think that's kind of why. But I don't know, Dr. Caswell, what do you think about that? Yeah, for sure. I, you know, it's usually an incidental finding for a lot of folks in medicine and they're like, what, preventive medicine, that's a thing. And usually I think of it as the bottom foundation of like first line of every, you know, like disease that you should be doing that everybody overlooks because we just jump into like pharmacotherapy, right? And so we avoid talking about the foundation. And I think that's where preventive medicine lies. And it is one of the 24 American Board of Medical Specialties recognized in the United States. And however, yeah, it is largely unknown. It is an incidental finding a lot of the time. And so people don't generally know it exists. So, And it's got some of the funner, like, I don't say subspecialties, but like under its umbrella have some of the more fun things that that we think about in medicine. So I think lifestyle medicine, for example, which is what Dr. Caswell practices, aerospace medicine, which is what my wife is really interested in because she wants to go to space or work with astronauts. You know, all of those kinds of things fall under preventive medicine. So it's, I don't know, it's more fun than people realize. They just don't know that it exists. So. And it's not a subspecialty, right? It is a full no, it's its own top of the umbrella. Specialty. Yeah. It is. So, yeah. So basically preventive medicine, we are trained in health promotion and prevention of disease, death and disability at multiple levels. So not just, you know, your clinical one-on-one with patients, but also at the community level and, you know, like even more broad levels. So because of that training, there's different types of ways that you can practice preventive medicine, but the three main areas underneath the preventive medicine umbrella are occupational medicine. So those are your, you know, physicians that are dealing with employment physicals and, you know, like anything related to work, um, fit for duty, the military loves Ahmed. And then there's general preventive medicine and public health, which is what I do and what my training was at Loma Linda, um, and then the third one is aerospace medicine. Now, that is typically thought of military, you know, because you're dealing with the pilots that are flying the airplanes and you know, all those physiological changes that come with the changes in altitude and, and so forth. Um, but there is a combined program in Texas, I believe, that does civilians, and it's combined internal medicine with aerospace medicine that people can apply. But I know very little from aerospace medicine, although some of those concepts do fall under our general preventive medicine boards. So we do have to learn some of those. And then there's like hyperbaric medicine underneath that, addiction medicine as like the subspecialties of PrevMed. So there's a few more. So I imagine that aerospace medicine is going to become more and more important as a civilian occupation with the rise of private companies doing basically space travel and other related mm -hmm. things. So I was just reading yeah. on that actually, and they, it's burgeoning right now. And they talk about just the number of studies and don't let me speak out of uh, my death knowledge we don't, in any look, sense. Look, I, this is your first show. Yeah. Okay. So I need to tell you that. No worries. How many strikes do I get? That's no. What I, I, I need to tell you that we opine. <laughs> okay. On the show, as as we should, and yeah. I know Jeff and I have had one too many lunch conversations. Usually at this time, we're usually just bantering. Yeah. But uh, no, I, in the discussion of that, they talk about the research that we have to date, and there's all these major pushes right now from private corporations corporations to look at. Okay, well, is it even possible for us to have somebody on the International Space Station? I think they say the record is like 569 days or something in that ballpark, and they say, well, okay, what happens to the body at 700 days, at 800 days? What happens with this low gravity? And I think there's 
new research that's starting to get funded now just because of the rate at which we're looking to move back move back listen to that but i mean there's a you know there's a new push to get to the to get to the moon again and establish a base on the moon that will be sort of like the International Space Station, but on the moon, and then eventually go to Mars. So anyway, I, I know there, that's not... There are aerospace fellowships that mm-hmm. are more focused towards emergency medicine, which is fine when you're thinking about, well, if somebody's going to go live on Mars, right? But I think for the most part, a lot of what aerospace medicine from the preventive medicine side is focusing on is like, you know, if you have an emergency on the ISS, like like a health emergency, for the most part, most of the time, it's probably because somebody messed up before they got there. You know, like it's, that was something that probably should have been prevented. You know, we should have been looking at their cardiological health or, or whatever, you know. Yeah, so. you don't send somebody up there right now if they're not completely healthy as, as best you can determine. Yeah, and yeah. I think yeah. those employed yeah. by NASA themselves, they talk about the, it's so much of their job is looking at, okay, from a pharmacological standpoint, what can I send up? You know, every ounce has to be accounted for and gets a little bit into the weeds there from, like you said, the pharmacological aspect, but... Interesting, nonetheless. We're going way too long on on aerospace because yeah, let's get. <laughs> but it's interesting, right? Like, it is. It's totally. Yeah, I mean, you can work for the FAA doing your employment physicals for your pilots sure. that are just flying for regular, you know, airlines. My my brother is an airline pilot, mm. and so he deals with that a lot. So yeah, there's definitely room there for employment if needed, and you know, people are interested in and want to get that type of training. But generally speaking, it's more military. Yeah. Uh, because you know you've got your pilots and so forth, and they need to make sure that they're fit for duty. Yeah. So, 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 what does your practice look like? Like, what your career path or your current practice? In sure. Yeah. So, I can probably start with my background into like how I got to where I am because I did really use my uh, residency time to make sure I was fine tuning my potential employment after because preventive medicine. You know, so I'm speaking from general preventive medicine, public health. Ahmed is very straightforward. Aerospace, very straightforward. General preventive medicine, public health is very what I call broad spectrum in the sense that you can get these um, jobs in various different types of agencies and healthcare organizations. So you can go do academia, you can do public health and government, you can go do military, um, you can do clinical preventive medicine, you know, private and whatnot. So I was able to fine tune that through residency. However, I'd first come across lifestyle medicine. That was my entryway. I had a personal history of like at the very beginning, after the birth of my third kid, I lost about 85 pounds through lifestyle behavior changes alone. And when I was in medical school as a first year, I came across American College of Lifestyle Medicine during an MSK lecture. And I was like, what is that? And I was a health coach at the time and I was teaching group fitness at the gym and medical school. And then fast forward, I started a lifestyle medicine interest group. And it was through that that I found preventive medicine. And I started working with some of the folks here at Loma Linda because lifestyle medicine originates from here as we are one of the five blue zones of the, the world. These are areas where people tend to have long, healthy lives. Correct. Yes. And very much so. So here at Loma Linda, you know, it is exactly what they say it is like there, you know, lots of restaurants with plant based options and vegetarian options because of the Seventh Day Adventist population here because Loma Linda is a Seventh Day um, institution. So 
and then a lot of walking and, and biking pathways and people are very social around here. So you've got all these components that make people live a really long time. So I wanted to come here to do lifestyle medicine. They have preventive medicine here, but like you were saying earlier, preventive medicine is considered part of any other specialty. You know, you got family medicine, internal medicine, PED. So you're going to be able to use a lot of preventive medicine. And, and that's what I thought. And so I'd chosen family medicine coming out of medical school and ended up going to one of the pilot sites for the lifestyle medicine residency curriculum, which is now available in dozens of residencies throughout the United States. And so I went to Southwest Florida at an amazing family medicine program with Lee Health and FSU in Fort Myers. And it was about three quarters of the way through my PGY1 that I realized family medicine was not for me. It felt very reactive. And I thought, how on earth am I supposed to address 17 different conditions, which are most of them chronic, and be only given 15 minutes to do all of that? And that just didn't match what I was wanting. And But I've always wanted PrevMed. The intent was to do PrevMed after I finished Family Med. And so my program director at the time was very supportive. And so I was able to fast track my PrevMed journey. So PrevMed, you have to have at least one year, at least a PGY1 before you can start it or a transitional year somewhere, or you can finish an entirely different specialty if you want and then come into PrevMed. So, so, so just, just to- for the jargonless, what you're what PGY1 means is... Oh, postgraduate year one. Right. So, so, this, so this is your intern year in whatever specialty. Mm-hmm. Yeah, you, exactly. So whatever it is that you choose to do, even if you stop early after PGY1, you just have to have at least one year after medical school to come into PrevMed. So I ended up with a gap year because I made my decision way too late. In Florida, you can practice independently after a year of training and you've gotten your license after taking either year level three or step three. So I worked independently and waited to get my spot at Loma Linda, which was always the dream and it's what I got. And so I was able to come here and tailor my training. So I knew that I loved lifestyle medicine, but also had left family medicine because I wanted to make a bigger impact. And I knew I wanted public health and some sort of population medicine. Now, Ahmed and general PrevMed and public health require that you get an MPH prior to finishing your training. So here at Loma Linda, they put you through an MPH. It's free. So part of your training, you're also in school. So different programs throughout the country, they'll either put you through an MPH in one year, then you do PrevMed, like all your clinical rotations and everything, or you just do it concurrently through your two years in, in Loma Linda. That's what they did. How so was I that? Was in an MPH at the same time. You know, it felt much better controlled than being an intern. Because I, I feel like that's yeah, a low even, it's better than an intern here. Okay. <laughs> yeah. And I feel like I, I was talking to somebody about this the other day. You just know you learned how to study, right? Because you did medical school yeah. and medical school is so tough. And, you know, a lot of people have to retrain themselves on how to study. But when you go through that rigorous you know, academic four-year journey, you kind of figure out how to study. So when you go and 
do your MPH. It feels more manageable because you know how to handle it. It's still quite a significant volume, but here, you know, my experience here with our program, they do a pretty good job at making sure that you have time. So we basically worked four days a week, like Monday through Thursday. And then Fridays were our didactic days and then days that we were given time to actually study. But I also have had three kids right and so like my time is pretty pretty tight so I had to study on the weekends as well but it felt very manageable and much better control than it did during the intern year so is PrevMed a three not to mm -hmm. interrupt you is PrevMed a three-year residency or two years on top of your intern year which three great question Depending on how you come into it. So if you apply as a PGY-1, you know, during your intern year, then you need two years. If you finish an entirely different specialty, you can, you, there's two ways to do it. You can either apply for like a regular two-year program where you're going to get your MPH. Mm-hmm. Now, this is for most programs. Loma Linda has a, what we call a plus one program. And what that means is that residents from any specialty can be, I mean, we have PM&R starting um, here with the next academic year. They already know they want to do PrevMed. And so what they do is that they complete at least half of their MPH prior to starting one year of PrevMed, which would be a fellowship at that point. And then they finish their MPH and their fellowship in PrevMed at the same time. Um, So we we have uh, two fellows um, who I'm uh, overseeing at my full-time job through public health right now. And they're family medicine trained. They already had half of an MPH coming in or a complete MPH. And then they're finishing that at the same time they finish PrevMed. Loma Linda also takes some folks through a transitional year spot. And so they can apply as medical students, but that is specific to our program here. And it's, it can be quite competitive because of interests and because a lot of people come here because of the lifestyle medicine component. So what does, what does, uh, uh, what does your day look like? Sure. Yeah. So I, yeah, you know what, again, <laughs> the magic of the edit button. I'm <laughs> uh, So my day to day now, so I was able to tailor my residency program training to what I do now. So I have different hats with the knowledge of, I like clinical work and I also like non-clinical and administrative work. So I was actually chief resident in my program and through the networkings of being involved with American College of Preventive Medicine, which I'd like to talk about in a little bit, I was able to land some really cool jobs. So my full-time job, my Monday through Friday job is at the County Department of Public Health uh, for San Bernardino County. It is the largest contiguous county in the United States. It is so large we have to divide ourselves into regions, and every region is a little bit different in terms of what our population looks like. Um, And so we're trying to target initiatives and, you know, things that we're trying to work on public health, like we have to be very strategic depending on the region um, because it can be so different. And we have a very large underserved area, despite the fact that Loma Linda is a blue zone of the world, but if you drive 
five minutes north on the other side of the freeway, it's one of the poorest, most underserved areas in Southern California. Mm. So we have plenty of opportunity to work with the underserved, you know, in terms of public health. And so my two hats in public health are for chronic disease prevention. So I am currently dealing with our community health assessment and the implementation side of it to try to target our activities that will um, meet our strategies for the next five years for the county. Um, And then also I have some aspects of maternal and child and adolescent health. So those are my two hats. And I also oversee the, our general preventive medicine residents. And so I do a fair amount of teaching them as they come through county and they also get experience to rotate in TB clinic and HIV clinic and STI clinic as well to manage those populations. And then, and and those are with other attendings. My part-time hat are with uh, telemedicine and particularly with lifestyle medicine and obesity medicine. And so I work for Weight Watchers Clinic and I really love doing that. I like the one-on-one interactions with patients. And because I... uh, had my own personal weight loss history of about a hundred pounds now and sustained over time. I feel like I can empathize a lot with patients and understand what they're going through because it is so difficult to lose weight. So I'm able to do that part-time and it's pretty flexible, which is great. And then I'm just back now onboarding with Loma Linda University Health with their preventive medicine department. Um, and continue to work with the residents and do with grants as well for our department. So just have different hats for the things yeah, that I like. That's, a, that's, a, big that's a pretty rack. full hat rack. Yeah. Let's not do this. Let's not Shortcoats, if this episode is worth listening to this far, it's worth sharing. So blast us on your socials. And if you want a sticker for your trouble, send us a screenshot. Thanks. In terms of your public health hats and the roles you play with that, what does funding look like that nowadays? Is there actually good funding? And I don't know if you're allowed to say this or not, but what does that look like? No, there is. They have different funding streams for maternal, child and adolescent health, MCH. So there's funding for programs like that that you know, come funneled directly from HRSA, or maybe they come funneled through our state health department. So there is funding for programs. So for example, like I'm dealing with the fetal infant mortality review. And so we've been able to expand our program to include maternal um, interviews to be able to like understand and obtain qualitative data on, you know, what is their experience with, you know, like their fetal or infant loss and what were the barriers that they were seeing that, you know, so we can prevent those from happening again. The interviews are so helpful because they help us see a clearer picture, you know, because it can say, well, this mom had late prenatal care entry, but it doesn't say why, you know, and it's not until the interview that like we have a full understanding of the difficulties they had with, you know, getting insurance coverage or, you know, is that healthcare access and, and whatnot. And those are things that we already know that are going on just in general terms. What you just mentioned is something I've heard other people say, which is that, um, you know, when you see somebody, when you see a patient, you barely know their story, you know, so, you know, for instance, that they didn't get prenatal health care. And so you might assume there are reasons, you know, you might assume some reasons for that, but it's important to 
sort of interrogate that initial perception mm-hmm. so that you understand really what the problems were for that person. Exactly. So I now that I've gotten preventive medicine public health training, it's been like eye-opening to understand what the issues are. So when we look at patients, we, you know, we will label them as non-compliant, non-adherent to taking their meds or going to their appointments, but we don't like generally ask why. And usually it's some sort of barrier that they had. Maybe the referrals didn't go through. Maybe they couldn't afford their medication. Maybe they didn't know how to take their medication. Maybe they couldn't get transportation to go to the doctor. Maybe we told them they needed to eat healthy and lose weight, but they actually couldn't couldn't afford their food, or maybe they were losing their house. So, you know, there's all these barriers in front of patients and just alone, the navigation through the healthcare system is outrageous. I was going to say that's a big part of it. Yeah. Like I, I can imagine people giving up at some point, Exactly. even if they're aware that care exists for them. Mm-hmm. You know, sometimes it's yeah. too hard to get just because it's a pain in the ass. Convolution does yeah. not do it justice. To yeah, yeah. Mess. So, you know, being able to understand what their barriers are. And I think as physicians, too, we don't really understand what public health has to offer and all the available programs that are out there. Because I'll ask, you know, physicians and they're like, oh, I had no idea that existed mm-hmm. for patients. Like, you know, like, where are these resources coming from? Well, it's like public health has them like, but, you know, there's. And there's all these projects and all these initiatives and all these programs that are working, you know, and we all work in silos. And so there's like no cross um, communication and data sharing. And so it makes it so difficult for, you know, physicians to learn what's all out there for patients. You know, they don't get the resources they need. And so they end up being labeled as non-compliant and non-adherent in their chart without a full understanding of what it is that they're going through at the social, um, economic and, you know, aspect of their environment. So I'm going to use a military analogy, which I don't do a lot of, but I just don't have a better example. I have a friend who got her MPH several years ago, and we've had conversations about the antagonism between physicians and public health. And essentially, I think we kind of came to the conclusion, you know, trying to talk it out is that public health is, they're kind of like officers, you know, like their job is to see the whole battlefield. Their their job is to kind of see the whole thing and think about the the big strategy. And physicians or doctors, they're more like your NCOs, your sergeants, right? They're the ones that are in charge, but they're in the trenches. And you do need both of them, but it's also very easy with that analogy for me to see what the blind spots are and why there'd be contention between those two. Because as a doctor, often you're thinking like, they don't know what it's actually like to be in front of the patient. They don't know what these problems that these patients are facing, right? right? Or whether that's from a non-compliance standpoint, because some patients just like, it is really frustrating to care about a patient more than they seem to care about their own health. So that's one thing that doctors see, right? There's also the bureaucracy, the burnout that physicians have to deal with that is already making them exhausted. And then on top of that, there's the well, yeah, I can tell patients to do that, but I know that they can't do that, right? And then at the same time, public health is, you know, taking a step back and looking at this and I'm like, look, you keep like just kind of putting a Band-Aid on a bullet wound over here. Like you're not actually addressing the real problems. And so, and both of them are just kind of exhausted looking at each other, scratching their head. I think that's one of the reasons why I, this is the specialty that calls to me so much. It's like, I, somebody's got to bridge that gap. You know, somebody's got to be able to communicate between the two worlds because the the patients deserve it. So, right. 
Exactly. Yes. I think in preventive medicine, public health, it's really good because you have a sense of both, you know, like you know how to manage the population, but you also have that experience of seeing patients one-on-one and understanding, you know, the difficulties on both sides. And so I think that is quite helpful when you're trying to manage uh, populations just to have that baseline knowledge. Yeah. So you've kind of already addressed this, but I want to bring attention to an important difficulty, I guess, in public health and preventive medicine, which is where do you start, right? So I've done uh, malnutrition work in, in with pregnancy and and infants, and that's a great place to start for preventive medicine before they're before they're even done gestating. Let's make sure that we're preventing disease, right? But for the vast majority of our patients, like you kind of said when when you were talking about your struggles in your intern year in family med, they've already got the chronic disease. So how do you, as a preventive medicine physician, you're thinking like my job is to make sure that I'm preventing as much disease as possible. How do you walk into a community that unless you're dealing almost exclusively with uh, maternity or newborns, your population probably is already managing chronic disease? Does that make sense? Yeah. So I think there are different levels of prevention. So there's primary prevention, secondary prevention, tertiary prevention. So Mm -hmm. your primary prevention is for all the population, right? Those are, you know, health promotion and vaccines. You know, you just do it for everybody to prevent any sort of disease to come into play. So public health is very good uh, about their health promotion efforts. And so, you know, we have teams that go out in the community, you know, they provide education. You know, they partner with schools and different agencies to, you know, educate the population and so forth to, you know, make sure that people are leading healthy lives. So then we go to secondary prevention, which is, you know, you've got a population at risk and, you know, they might need screening. So for example, people who smoke, you know, they need lung cancer screening, you know, and there's like criteria for that. And so you can educate them and you can, you know, provide resources, you know, like help quitting smoking and so forth and doing your lung cancer screening and and whatnot. So there's, you know, there's self-education there. And then you got your tertiary prevention, which is for people who already develop chronic disease. So obesity is one. Obesity is a chronic disease, but it also, I find, I call it, it's like the gateway to other chronic diseases, right? Because adipose tissue doesn't just sit there doing nothing, right? It creates havoc in the system. And so a lot of metabolic issues and hormonal issues, and and then it can also increase your risk of development. MSK issues. Yeah. Yeah, MSK issues, cardiovascular disease, type two diabetes, you know, all your bread and butter chronic diseases. And so they've already developed it. So how do we prevent it from becoming worse and having complications down the road? So you, again, you can do health education and, and things like that to be able to, you know, prevent things from getting worse. Um, but it just depends on what is your, you know, what is your population that you're looking at. So your denominator is going to be different um, depending on what you're wanting to do and what type of prevention you're trying to accomplish. Okay. That makes sense. So like <laughs> imagine and uh... Dave, you can go back and edit this if this is a dumb question. So I'm imagining, you know, you have a patient coming in, 30 oh, years old. Oh, thank you. 30 years old. <laughs> Don't edit that. Um, <laughs> they're, they're a little overweight. They're not like severely overweight, but they're already starting to see some comorbidities because of their weight issues. And you, as a lifestyle medicine, you're like, okay, how am I going to approach this patient? As opposed to family medicine, what would be the difference of the approach for a lifestyle medicine physician? 
Yeah. So in lifestyle medicine, we get very good at doing what we call motivational interviewing. And I don't know if that's a term that you've heard before. So we basically learn a lot of coaching skills to be able to drive people to change their behavior. And even people who are, you know, ambivalent, like they don't, you know, don't want to do one way or another, or maybe they're contemplative. You try to drive them from one stage to the next. So you've got these stages, right? Pre-contemplation where they're like in denial about their issue contemplation where they're like thinking about making some changes because of whatever issue they've got. And then they're in preparation stage where they're about, you know, 30 days out from making the change in an action and then maintenance, and then they might relapse, you know, so those are the stages. So in motivational interviewing, lifestyle medicine, you learn to move people from one stage to the next, into the next, into the next. And so, you know, if they have overweight or they have obesity, and they have some comorbidities associated with it. Maybe they developed obstructive sleep apnea because of their weight, you know, on their neck, or they developed hypertension, or maybe they their A1C is now in the pre-diabetic range, which is showing me that they're insulin resistant. Um, then we start talking about their motivation for change. Maybe they don't care about the labs, to be honest. That's not their issue. The issue is they can't go up the stairs without getting winded. They can't keep up with their grandkids and they can't go on airplane rides because it's just too much. And, you know, maybe their size is too large. You know, it makes it difficult for traveling. Maybe they can't go to the amusement park because it's just, you know, like it's just not physically feasible for them. And they would like to do those things. So we basically ask patients, like, why is it that you want to make the change? Because everybody wants to lose weight, but what is the reason behind it? And what is it that's really important to you for you to making that change and making it sustainable? So we really try to get to like the very root reason as to why they need to make the change and use that to help them, you know, go along and move along those stages. So we would start with, you know, assessing nutrition and their physical activity and their sleep and their stress. And, you know, are they using any toxic substances? Are they smoking? Are they, you know, drinking a lot of alcohol or using any street drugs and whatnot? And then looking at, you know, what kind of support do they have around them? So that's the way that we frame it. And then the way that we do um, goal setting with them is that we'll say, okay, instead of saying you need to eat healthier, that is way too vague. And I see that in charts all the time. And I'm like, that's a good effort. You get A plus for effort, (laughs) but we need to work on being a little bit more specific. So that's when we talk about having smart goals where they're small, measurable, attainable, you know, realistic and and time timely. So you have to make them very specific. So basically you're saying, okay, well, I need you to eat healthy. Maybe they're only eating one serving of fruit and vegetable every day. So they're definitely not getting enough fiber and not getting a lot of the phytonutrients they need. So can you make it two servings? I need it. And how often can you do that per week? And, you know, is it going to be what? Inch by inch. Yeah, yeah. Exactly. Inch by inch. Exactly. Because if they feel like you're asking them to overhaul their life overnight, they're not going to do it most of the time unless they just had a heart attack. And this is for some folks. They'll have like a come to Jesus moment in the hospital where they just had a heart attack and they're like, I have got to do something because I am not ready to die. And they will change. They they will overhaul. So Loma Linda is interesting because they have the one and 
to my knowledge, the only inpatient lifestyle medicine consult service in the country. And I was able to rotate through that briefly and learn how to do lifestyle medicine consults and whatnot on the hospital setting for patients exactly like that. And so those are very teachable moments for patients, but you have to make it for most people, they can only tolerate like, you know, small, little, tiny goals. And so, you know, maybe it's exercising 10 minutes per day to start out with until they can get to the 150 minutes of physical activity they need to have per week at moderate level, you know, with two days of strength training. So you just have to start very small with them and then just consistently check up on them, you know, and then slowly increase their and challenge them, but make it so it's, you know, attainable for them over time. I would say for people that are maybe uncomfortable with the terminology, like people can't handle big goals or whatever. Like this isn't necessarily, we're not trying to infantilize people. It's just recognizing that all of us have a full life already. You know, our minds are, our plates are full from the moment we wake up until the moment we go to bed and Mm -hmm. small additions or small subtractions here and there, those are feasible, but Mm -hmm. you know, you start moving too much around and and it's just too much to think about. You don't have the brain space for it. Um, Exactly. Yeah. and, and obviously this is case by case, right? Yeah. But generally speaking, you try to make it small. Some people are ready to like go all out. And there are times when I'll see patients and they far exceeded their goals. <laughs> and, but that's because they were like motivated and they're ready. And I'm like, okay, let's do it. You know, and you like get on the same page, but the goal is to make sure that you're meeting them halfway. So even if you're in you know, clinic or, you know, with family medicine or, in, you know, internal medicine, you're doing primary care, you know, try to meet them where they're at, you know, and make one small little goal for them that's very specific that they can do. So they feel like that they're successful and be able to take on bigger challenges over time as they get used to their new routine. Well, you made it to the second break. You tolerate us. If you can, consider donating or buying a sticker or something. Visit theshortcoat.com and help us do stuff without having to beg a dean for money. Thanks. Dr. Caswell, how does a patient access you? I also was, I was in fitness and wellness for like a decade before stumbling on here. I was a group fitness instructor too. And there's a, he's got the six packs to prove it. Oh no. Yeah. Only things that end in cerveza, but the, but no, it's one of the medical school side effects or, you know, medical training side effects. Yeah. But, but exactly like what you were saying, my question is the fact of, cause you know, individuals who can afford group fitness, individuals who can afford a personal trainer or a health coach or anything like that. I feel like there's a the majority swath of the population who can't afford those more expensive avenues. How do people access PrevMed? How do people say, I know I need to make a change. I can't afford to go the you know private route. How is that publicly accessible? Do they get a referral? Do they walk into a, a clinic? Because you said you're one of, if not the only one of two in Loma Linda inpatient services. So what does that look oh. like for everybody else? Yeah. So here in La Melinda, they have the lifestyle medicine consult service on the inpatient side, but I don't work there. I don't do hospital work. I just decided a long time ago, I wasn't made for hospital. So, but here at La Melinda, we have a center for health promotion where they can go in and see a physician that is very much PrevMed geared and, and oriented. We do have an FQHC here. We have a lot of FQHCs in our county. What's Sorry, it's a federally qualified health center. So basically, okay. 
basically they receive federal dollars to be able to treat, you know, care for the underserved. Okay. So the one associated here with Loma Linda, they have two lifestyle medicine clinics. One it's for fam- run by family medicine. The other one is uh, grant funded uh, by HRSA specific for women. So it's a woman's lifestyle medicine clinic. And, and that's where I did about six months of my training doing obesity medicine, lifestyle medicine. Now I'm trying to start that from the public health side through the public health department as well for the other FQHCs, but that's a work in progress. And so there are lifestyle medicine physicians out there. There are preventive medicine physicians out there, you know, and just a matter of being able to figure out where they are. And unfortunately, they're not everywhere because we're still very small specialty, but we do exist. And sometimes we fall under different titles. Like medical directors can be one. So we're not always easy to find just because we carry different titles. So you're making uh you're making me feel like, you know, we've talked a lot about on this podcast and medicine generally that, you know, a lot of countries they'll have a, a 70% uh, primary care and 30% specialties. Whereas in the US, we're more like 30% primary care, 70% specialty. And I think don't let the bone guys come at me for this, but like, I think we, we could probably stand to have fewer doctors that are like subspecialized in like the tibia or whatever, you know, like hyper-specialized in those <laughs> yeah. tiny little areas. Um, and, and we need more primary cares, but you're making me feel like I'm going to lump into that, you know, your family medicine, your internal medicine, um, your pediatrics. I'm going to go ahead and lump in preventive medicine and those specialties that like the country would be a lot better off health-wise if we could just get more people into these specialties. So what Absolutely. are we doing to do that? Or, or what are the barriers to people getting into preventive medicine, I suppose? Yeah. So I think visibility or lack of visibility is one, which we're as American College of Preventive Medicine is actively working on and they have a visibility um, committee to be able to, you know, augment, you know, our position out there, you know, like we are here, like we exist. Uh, we hide all these under different titles, um, but we do exist and we have for a long time. So they are augmenting, you know, that aspect. And, you know, we do want medical students to know about AC p.m. and to come to our conference you know we have conferences every year in april and so this one coming up is in washington dc in april 18th through the through, you know the saturday session with dean ornish who's huge in preventive and lifestyle medicine will be doing one of the talks and you know med students can join for a very small fee you know to have a membership through acpm and that way so they can network and figure out you know where do i want to work you know as an attending and, and on after PrevMed. So they are increasing visibility there. I think that just the fact that we're trying to have all these other specialties know that we exist is also another issue. So we're working on, you know, making sure that other specialties can, you know, refer to us and, you know, like, use that, use us, you know, especially in clinical preventive medicine. Like if you are not sure how to talk to your patients about, you know, healthy living and, you know, vaccines and, you know, getting their screenings done, like refer to us, you know, we can do all that talking for you. So in a way we're trying to increase our visibility. We're trying to, you know, get connected with folks. I often talk about it on social media, which is a lot of the time how I find folks that are wanting to come into PrevMed 
and they're like, what? Like, I want to leave my specialty. I didn't know you existed. I've always been preventive medicine minded, but didn't know there was a place for that in medicine. I didn't even know that was a thing um, until and- yesterday. Yeah. You're welcome. Right? Yeah. Right. So it's an incidental finding. A lot of the time, most of the time it is. So for the med students that are finding out about it now through your podcast, they're going to be ahead of the curve because as a medical student, you should have all the options available that are out there in front of you before you can make an informed decision about the specialty that you're trying to match into. I feel like, and I feel like we just don't know as med students, we don't know what there is out there. Um, And a a plug for Carver is the, I mean, a, I mean, every medical school is going to get you there, right? But one of the things I like about our school is because our clinical rotations start earlier, we have a little bit more time to look for those advanced rotations before we're applying. I I have a a couple of friends that they're like applying and they're like, well, I mean, these are the specialties that I recognize on my required core list. And like, that's the only ones that they've seen. you know, mm-hmm. and that's, you know, exactly. hats off today for making time to do these sleeper specialty podcast episodes so we can talk about these, you know, because mm-hmm. I would, I started a preventive medicine interest group here at Carver specifically because like, I want to see more people going into this. I want there to be more preventive medicine physicians out in the world. So I think this is a common problem. I, I will say, you know, don't, I'm glad, I'm happy that you gave me some credit for this, but I will say that. Um, I think everybody has this problem when they're looking for a purpose in life or a career. There's so many options out there that it's impossible to cover, you know, all of them. I've, you know, in the 20 years I've been working here, I've come to realize how broad healthcare is. It's not just doctors. It's not just physician assistants. It's not just nurses. It's a whole ecosystem it's a whole yeah it's a whole thing and i didn't know that when i was a young person i didn't know shit when i was a young person but anyway point is that it's has, a, has that changed much mm, I, I only i feel like the older i get the less i know actually the less certain i am oh, of anything that, you know that's probably pretty healthy though this Good is absolutely probably forgot more than i'll ever learn so i mean okay but i forget a lot more than other people yeah. so, <laughs> you gotta <laughs> I think it's the point I'm trying to make is it's not a it, it's it's not an uncommon thing and 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 yeah I wish there was more I wish there were more to um to sort of bring these opportunities to to light yeah I feel like prev med just has a marketing problem but everything else is everything absolutely has a mar- yeah. phenomenal yes yeah. I have to ask the question because of course I'll get railroaded uh by uh, all my colleagues if, if I don't what do you, uh, what does it look like for PAs in prev med are there PAs in prev med or is that one of the the avenues or like oh, we never even thought about that. Yeah, I've never had a question from a PA in PrevMed, but I know that there I've had questions from other healthcare professionals, like like nurse nurse practitioners mm-hmm. that have wanted to join PrevMed. Right now it's for physicians, like the ACPM is for physicians, yeah. but I don't see why in the future, you know, you can't open that up. But, you know, I'm not an admin for ACPM. And so I can't say that for sure. But ACLM, on the other hand, which is the American College of Lifestyle Medicine, they are open to all healthcare professionals and they have interest groups for, you know, all the different types of healthcare professionals. And so they, those are open, but that's specific to lifestyle medicine. Yeah. 
I'm just seeing in the future, I'm going to like have a clinic, like a preventive medicine clinic. And Connor's just going to be my PA running the show. Like It's, it's yeah. one of those things that seems so on the nose. Like you said uh, earlier, Dr. Caswell, where it's like, oh, isn't every physician and PA and NP and nurse supposed to be doing preventive medicine? And then yeah. you're like, nope, it's actually, well, of course, but it's actually a specialty in and of itself. And then it's like the, okay, so why aren't we doing a million, a million new providers a year on this? It seems very... Very uh, Thanksgiving so, table. Yeah. So the issue has been historically the way that we run healthcare system in the United States is very reactive system, right? The way that you're saying how there's like so many more specialists than primary care, but that's because we trained ourselves to be reactive. And then we have an insurance coverage system that is very much reactive and doesn't really pay much for prevention. But now they're starting to realize, oh no, we can't deal with the chronic disease burden that's coming. And so we need to do something about it. And so there has been a lot of talk in terms of doing value-based care Mm -hmm. where, you know, you're paid for, you know, outcomes. And so you're not being paid by, you know, volume anymore. More. Although, you know, some proceed or some specialties, they'll continue to do that, you know, because they got to get a number of procedures done and whatever, RVUs. like if you're a surgeon. Yeah. And your RVUs, but generally speaking, like you get paid as a package basically mm-hmm. per patient. And so you're expected to do well. And so now that we're going towards that, then I feel like prevention is getting a lot more attention. And I think there's a lot of room there for expansion in preventive medicine because they're going to understand, oh, we're going to need this because, you know, like we we can't deal with the chronic disease burden. It's just too expensive for for our country to deal with all the chronic disease. And we have to do something about it. What would you and say? There are large is... established clinics that have been done wonderfully with the value-based care model. So, I, anybody that's interested in this, don't feel like you have to be a trailblazer. You certainly will have the opportunity. But like, there there are models that we yeah. can build on, we can replicate, we can scale, and I think that's, that's yeah. wonderful. Yeah, also, and... just my plug: I am going to be in DC for this conference in, in April. Oh, so, if somebody needs a awesome. roommate at the hotel, you know, just email Dave. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, there's so yeah, there's definitely models out there that are coming like Medicare, they do chronic care management, where basically you have a team in the clinic that, you know, deals with your higher complex uh, patients. So it's a team of, you know, a case manager, a nurse, you know, you know, maybe you have a like a health coach of, of some sort, and the physician who are all kind of like working together, make sure these higher complexity patients have some attention. There's also enhanced care management, you know, that is being implemented, you know, for patients on Medicaid. And that's something California is trying to do. So and it's the same concept, you know, it's like a team based approach for these patients that need additional care because they are higher complexity. So you know, they're looking for more ways to, you know, stop that derail train from, you know, from just, you know, having more issues. I have one last question. Sure. Before I let you all go, because we're getting up there. We could go on for this is a really great topic and and it's really interesting to me personally. Oh, I could talk about this for hours. But my question is, you know, it's getting back to the subject of attracting people to the profession. One of the things that I know that students think about is the lifestyle of the specialty that they're getting into so ignoring intern year which is you know this <laughs> you put that off to the side. i mean that's a it's kind of an outlier nobody um, likes intern year yeah what would you say how did you find 
the the rest of your training and then what would you say for most physicians who might end up getting into preventive medicine what does that look like yeah that's a great question i love that you asked that because i meant to say that earlier and failed to do it so PrevMed training there's unless you're doing an elective in the hospital which very rarely do people choose to do that it's no weekends no holidays no nights no on-call nothing like your monday through friday and then you might be studying you know whether or not you're in an mph program i'm sold already i was gonna say it sounds like the perfect crime (laughs) yeah yeah it's it's crazy there's like i remember being in residency there's over 50 specialties to the loma linda system and there's like 52 or 57 something like that and we were one of the only like i think we were the only ones that didn't require pagers and that. and so wow. yeah it's get to live in the so 21st century and everything yeah. <laughs> yeah it's pretty amazing so you have a chance to you know like be a human through residency training of course you're busy you're still doing a lot of hard yes. work yes. because yeah. you are still learning but it is more human and and then now even same way you know i work monday through friday i don't work holidays but i'm a government employee so you know i get all my federal uh holidays off i'm certainly and, not going to bash a uh, uh, government employee <laughs> and so right? we do have a good you know good time off that way yeah. you know and it feels more balanced i do have i'm a single mom i have three kids and so i am busy with my kids but I can, you know, do my, you know, I can do telemedicine on the side. My oldest right now is in high school and he has a horrific soccer schedule through the high school. And this week it's like literally every day there's something going on, but I can manage that, you know, and with no help. And so it feels very manageable. Is it busy? Yes. Is it a lot of hard work? Yes. But it, you know, I'm not in the hospital at night at 11 o'clock at night trying to answer pages pagers you know like i don't have any of that so it is really nice sounds nice yeah well we have to wind this up that's our show dr castle it's been lovely yes thank you for joining us today i've totally enjoyed this conversation it's been so fun and i appreciate being invited on and i super appreciative so thank you go to go check out the american college of prevent Preventive medicine, right? Preventive ACPM. medicine, yeah. And let's find out more about the profession. And Jeff, yeah. thanks for producing today's show and asking Dr. Caswell to join us. Yeah, it was an honor. And Connor, thanks for being a part of it. It's well, been lovely. Thanks for putting out my questions. Come, come to more shows. I'm gonna get. I, now I'm gonna. You're gonna be stuck with me. I'm gonna just be rattling questions. That's fantastic. What yeah. kind of, and what kind of silly man would I be if I didn't thank you, Shortcoats, for making this part of your week? If you're new here and you like what you heard today, follow the show wherever fine podcasts are available. You know where they are: Spotify, Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, YouTube. Uh, the show is made possible by a generous donation by Carver College of Medicine Student Government and ongoing support from the Writing in Humanities program. Our music is by Dr. Vox and Catmosphere. I'm Dave Etler saying don't let the bastards get you down. Talk to you in one week. Gosh, that sounded good. <laughs> yeah. oh, that was great. my life. Hi, short coats. Look, life in medical education, life in America, life in the world is often difficult. And I often wish I could help. 
all I have is this podcast, but in my wildest dreams, you have the support you need to lead a life of your choosing. You deserve to be happy, healthy, and successful in whatever ways you define those words. So if you need support because you've experienced racism, discrimination, harassment, mental health crises, I want you to be able to get the help that you need. And so I'm going to put some links in the show notes to some resources that you can use. But the bottom line is that for what it's worth, I see you. I know you're out there. I wish I could do more. Maybe I can in ways that I don't understand yet or know about. But I see you and I'm glad you're here and other people are too. This Short Code podcast is a proud member of the MedEd Media Network. Inspiration, information, and guidance on your journey to medical school and beyond at mededmedia.com.